So about 35 years ago, in his book, Liberating the Church, Howard Snyder, who's a theologian and a social commentator, he asked a prophetic question. Here's what he asked. What would a community need to do to essentially undermine itself and sever the bonds that connect us to each other, making it nearly impossible to share life with each other? Or maybe the simplest way you could say it is, how would a community go about destroying itself? Now, let me say, he wasn't advocating for this. He's, he's actually, as he saw it, the, the very essence of community was under siege. It was, it was under attack, and it was in decline, and he saw many different forces at play working to destroy community. Remember, this is about 35 years ago, before the internet, before the mass age of our digital age. And he outlined several things that I'll summarize. He said if a community was going to do that, first, they would need to fragment family life by segmenting and partitioning the members of that family into different directions and different worlds. Then, you'd want to reduce the family size. And with all the extra space created, you'd want to fill it with possessions and objects instead of people. Then, move people away from the neighborhoods where they grew up, essentially cutting their roots. And instead of allowing people to live near their relatives and friends and among familiar landmarks and symbols, move them to new neighborhoods. And of course, he said you'd want to set people farther apart by building larger houses and bigger yards so that they would never interact with each other. And you'd want to separate the places people work from where they live. The goal being to partition off people's lives into as many separate worlds and geographies as possible. And if you wanted to speed up the process, Snyder said, you'd want to make sure everyone had their own car and you'd want to replace all meaningful communication with television and entertainment. And what's the result of doing all that? A post-familial, disconnected culture where self is king, relationships are thin, and individuals fend for themselves. Even though people are more connected than they've ever been, people feel more isolated and lonely than ever before. It's never been easier for people to connect in a digital way or, or go, you can, you, can be, uh, you can fly across the country this afternoon and be anywhere in the world. Does that sound like anything like the world in which we live? More connected yet more isolated and lonely. Listen to these actual headlines from some of, the most some of the major news outlets in America. These headlines ran in the newspapers and internet uh, this year. The surgeon, these are just actual headlines, okay? Surgeon General says there's a loneliness epidemic. That was from the Washington Post. USA Today said young people report more loneliness, loneliness than the elderly. Over at the Globe, Biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity, it's loneliness. New York Times said this headline, The Surprising Effects of Loneliness on Health. Over at the Atlantic, loneliness begets more loneliness. Back at the Times again, how social isolation is killing us. And over at Slate.com, social isolation kills more people 
than obesity. They're tracking on something. I like how the writer Michael Frost describes our culture. He says that our culture has become like an airport departure lounge. You ever been in one of those? It's full of people, he says, who don't belong where they currently find themselves, whose interactions with others are fleeting, perfunctory, and trivial. Why? Because nobody's home. Everybody's headed somebody, somewhere else. And so nobody invests. Nobody actually belongs there. So nobody is truly present, and no one wants to be there. Right? They all want to get on to their next destination. See, in a world devoid of community, we're tourists who graze from one experience to another, nibbling here, sampling here, but with very little commitment that actually binds us to one another. Today, people are more lonelier than they've ever been, even though the opportunities for social connection and interaction have exponentially increased. Did you know that the former Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, declared loneliness an epidemic? He said that loneliness can cause higher levels of stress that lead to an increased risk of heart disease, arthritis, and diabetes. He said loneliness has the same effect as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. If Howard Snyder's question was, how do you go about destroying community, then the question we have to answer today, this morning, is how do we go about creating community? Psalm 133 this morning is a psalm of community. And it's going to teach us three things about community that our world of loneliness desperately needs to hear. First, we're going to learn about the nature of community. Like, What is it fundamentally? Second, we're going to learn about the effects of community. What does it actually produce? And finally, we'll get at the source of community. Where does it come from so that we can actually get it? So let's look at verse 1 together. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You see, over the summer, we've been walking through the Psalms of Ascent, and we're at the second to last Psalm. If you remember, these are pilgrim songs. They're, they're sung by Jews on their way to Jerusalem three times a year for their holy feasts. It's their playlist on the road. It's a psalm that celebrates the goodness and beauty of unity among the family of God. Now imagine them. They're getting closer to the city on their journey. Many of them have been traveling for days. Everyone's starting to get tired and cranky. There's no motels on the road. They're dirty. They're dusty. It's like a long car ride and everybody's starting to lose it. You ever been in one of those? Tensions are high. Babies are crying. Kids are exhausted and stir crazy. Dad has zoned out. He's just focused on the road, making sure we don't wreck. And mom is trying to keep everybody from killing each other. And as they approach the city, they know they're going to see old friends and relatives. That can make tensions run hot, can it? Envy starts to set in as comparisons are made. Bitterness surfaces as you see someone or a familiar place and old memories and regrets are remembered. During these holy feasts, scholars tell us that the population of Jerusalem would surge 30 times. It would go from a city of about 100,000 to about 3 million. It's like a family reunion on steroids three times a year. People competing for scarce resources, 
places to stay, water to drink, food to eat. Rivalries between tribes and families are kindled. And this song was to be sung to remind them how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. So what is he saying? The psalmist starts off by stating the obvious. I love that. He doesn't even argue for it. He just says it's true. It's intuitive and it's patently obvious to us. We just in our, it doesn't need a defense. We know it's true and everybody knows it. That unity is a good thing. And he calls our attention to it with that word, behold. He's saying, don't miss it. Don't miss how good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's at the same time a celebration of it, and it's also a call to pursue it. Now, this word brothers here is gender inclusive, which means it's actually referring to both men and women. And what's more is that it's even more of a broader term than merely just brothers and sisters of the same parents. It actually includes cousins and distant relatives. And so another way to say it, it's like God's people, behold how good and pleasant it is when God's people, the family of God, dwell together in unity. See, family imagery is really important when we think about God's people, the church. In fact, what you think about what the church is is really important. If it's an organization that provides spiritual goods and services, that's going to impact how you interact with the church. But see, the church is a family. We are family. Brothers and sisters. Why? Because we've been adopted by God the Father. Now, this isn't just some sentimental, feel-good imagery. It's actually what the Bible says happens when we put our faith in God. Listen to just a couple of passages. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that's Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might, hear it, receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so we're no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, an heir. Or again, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for, what? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. See, we were enemies of God, and in love, through the forgiveness that comes in Jesus, those of us in Christ are actually, literally, sons and daughters of God. If you leave here with nothing else, please don't miss that. So when we talk about brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity, we're not talking about empty sentimentality. We're talking about a real household living together as one with something real and tangible that connects us and binds us. In Christ, we have a common story, a common identity, and a common purpose. When brothers and sisters in Christ live together as one, the psalmist says it is good and pleasant. See, that's what community is, right? 
A community is a group of people who come together with a tight bond that they're living life together as one. Now it starts to speak to the nature of community. See, fundamentally, at its core, at its essence, community is something that is good and pleasant. But not only is it right and proper, it's delightful. That's why he says both of them. It's good and it's pleasant. It's lovely. It actually brings pleasure. It's good in principle and in practice. You know its goodness intellectually, but you also experience its goodness experientially. See, often our pursuit of pleasure is selfish in motivation, right? It consists in either frantically grabbing for what we want, or sometimes it's more subtle as we manipulate situations to go our way. And it's almost always when it's driven by selfish desires, our pleasure comes at the expense of somebody else. But unity in community is different. There's a kind of higher pleasure and a higher delight that comes when we reject the path of self and pursue the path of the other, where we submit our personal preferences to others, where we lift other people up. And at first, that sounds counterintuitive, right? How could I get satisfaction about denying my preferences? But if you've ever lived in that kind of community, you've experienced it, and you know the words I'm saying are true. When we're talking about community, the stress is on the unity, not the size. So we're not necessarily talking about a crowd either. See, in a crowd, whether that's a physical crowd or a digital crowd, we may gather a number and maybe we bump into each other, but there's no common story, there's no common identity, there's no common purpose. That's why there's no community in the lines at Costco, right? Lots of people gathered together, bumping into one another, but there's no community there, although I'm a huge fan. Love Costco. See, crowds don't agree on what's good and true and beautiful. They don't transform strangers into family. And that's why even some of the best communities that every one of us is a part of, like coworkers or friends or even biological family, when these communities are not centered around Christ, it's why you can sometimes feel like a stranger even in your own home. You can feel like strangers in these communities we're supposedly, known, we're supposedly even known the best because there's not a unifying, tying together, bigger picture, bigger community ideal. Now, just to clarify, when I talk about community, I don't mean uniformity. There's a huge difference between those things. Uniformity is false unity. It's an external, rigid, and sometimes even forced agreement, Right? There's a vast difference from unity, which is oneness of mind and heart around the truth. Uniformity is forcing homogeny in sameness, right? It's saying everyone has to believe the same way, think the same way, do the same thing, look the same, be the same. That's not what we're going for here. True community actually thrives in a diverse unity, not a uniform singularity. You see, God's designed the church to thrive with a unified diversity, not singular uniformity. That's why we're so big on diversity here at Seven Mile Road. We need it in order to be the people of God. 
So let me give a definition for this kind of unity in community. I came across this definition from a, um, a church out in Hong Kong. It's probably the best definition of community that I've ever heard. When I read it, it just floored me. It was written by a group of pastors who, after a long season of studying all the passages in the Bible on community and love and unity, wanted to write a definition that kind of encompassed all of them. So they're basically doing a lot of legwork for us and distilling, okay, what if you took all the things the Bible says about community and love and how we're supposed to relate to one another as a church, how could we take all of these 66 books of the Bible and, and synthesize it into a good definition that we can work with? Here's their definition. We've got the words on the screen. It's a little bit long, but every word of it is worth our looking at this morning. They said this, Christian community is Christ-centered, spirit-led, prayerful, and submitted to Scripture. Members of the community pledge their commitment to one another, choose to live sacrificially, and pursue an ongoing journey of personal transformation. Through hospitable, unhurried time together, particularly around food and fun, probably my favorite part of that whole thing, Right? We need that. This unified yet diverse community displays radical love, acceptance, and respect for one another. Real, authentic, vulnerable relationships create an environment of honest and open communication where truth is spoken in love, forgiveness is frequent, and encouragement is constant. In this mission-minded, multi-generational family of faith, Outsiders are welcomed in and present needs are met as each member contributes what they have and uses their gifts for the glory of God and the common good. That's amazing. That's community. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? That's all that's wrapped up in this word, unity. Centered around Christ saturated in scripture, brothers and sisters committed to one another in real, honest, and authentic, vulnerable relationships. Community where there's, it's people over preferences, communing over mere connectivity, and intimacy over interactions. It's commitment and sharing life together, centered around the one who gives meaning to the words, good, true, and beautiful. That's the nature of community. And when you have that, it is good and it is pleasant. And when people are in that kind of community, they will thrive. That's what this psalm is celebrating. Now let's look at verse 2 and 3 that we see the effects of that kind of community. Verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. The psalmist gives us two similes to help us understand the effects of true community, and both of them go completely over our heads. I mean, when I first read this, I thought, that is gross. Nobody better pour so much oil on my head that it runs down into my beard and ruins my clothes. I mean, it just sounds awful. So what's going on here? How can we understand 
these analogies that seem weird and messy to us, and the other one's in reference to two mountains that we've never even heard of. Okay, the first image, unity is likened to anointing oil that was poured on the high priest during their consecration ceremony, okay? So every time there was a new high priest, they were ordaining them to say, this is our high priest. He will have the job of going before us as the people of God so that we have a mediator between God and man. It's a very significant um, person in the life and the worship of Israel. And during this ceremony, they would pour oil on their head as, as to, to set them apart, to mark them out. And when they would do it, they wouldn't use just any run-of-the-mill oil. This wasn't market basket brand vegetable oil. The psalmist says it was precious oil. It would have been perfumed and fragrant. And fragrance has an attraction to it, right? This is a culture that lives in a dry and dusty climate. They don't have the modern gift of plumbing and running water. And so you can imagine how fragrance was needed in that kind of culture, right? The fragrance was attractive. It would would draw you in. It would cover up unpleasant smells with a pleasant fragrance. And in that kind of environment, being dusty and arid and dry, your skin was prone to cracking and getting dry and getting worn out. And the oil would restore it. It had a healing effect to it. So likewise, unity is like that. It's beautiful. It's fragrant. It's attractive. True community draws people in. True community can restore dry cracks from living in isolation. See, living in isolation has a way of wearing us out. Community has a way of restoring us. Now, this oil was used in the consecration of a new high priest, which means this, this oil was holy. It was set apart. You wouldn't just use it to saute vegetables. It was used for a specific purpose, set apart, sacred. Likewise, when you find that kind of community, it is holy and sacred, uncommon. And I don't mean just pious and holier than thou. Of course, God's community of faith is to be a holy community. We are to pursue holiness as a means of joy. But not only that, we're holy in the sense that we're set apart for a specific and special purpose of God. See, the high priest, I told you, had a special assignment to act as God's ambassador, his mediator, an agent of reconciliation between God and man. And this holy community has the same purpose We are holy and sacred as we are filled with the presence of God for the purposes of God in the world. We have a role to play. The church has a role to play as his ambassadors, telling the world of God's redemption plan to reconcile the world to himself. And as those who've been reconciled, we have the responsibility to this holy and sacred task to be ministers of that reconciliation. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, behold, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and listen, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, the church, the message of reconciliation. That's really the whole point of the high priest. Their job is to make it possible for an unholy people to live with a holy God. The point to God's provision, 
the, the, the high priests point to God's provision for how sin is dealt with, how guilt is removed, and how our shame is covered. It, it, it talks about how we don't have to fear judgment anymore, and it's been replaced with the assurance of salvation. That's the task. It's sacred. It's set apart. But not only that, the, the oil is diffusive. And what I mean by that is it, is it permeates. Did you see how it went from the head down into the beard and, and onto the clothes? You, you can't contain it. It doesn't stay put. When, you, when oil spills, it moves and it flows. See, community has the power to bless those under and near its influence. Its goodness and pleasure permeates from inside of it to the outside world. Those in proximity of that kind of community will experience its pleasantness and its goodness. And this picture of oil flowing down and, and being, uh, in a sense, wasted in a holy charge has this idea of abundance, doesn't it? There's plenty of it to go around. We just have to be willing to get under the spout. This kind of community restores and refreshes and renews like the holy anointing oil. Now in the second image, we have the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. See, Mount Hermon was the tallest mountain in Israel at 9,100 feet. It was the only snow-capped mountain in Israel, and it would mark the northern reach of the kingdom. Mount Zion, on the other hand, was in the, the southern part, and at 2,400 feet, it's really a hill. But it's a holy hill because that's where the temple is located, where God's very presence dwells. But because of its elevation and the fact that it remained covered in snow, Mount Hermon would have plentiful dew. And it was such that the dew from Mount Hermon would, would spread all the way down into the valley, even going so far to reach Mount Zion. And so this picture of dew falling down from Mount uh, Zion is a picture of refreshing the drier, dustier Mount Zion, which had consider considerably less precipitation, precipitation. See, dew is refreshing and restorative, isn't it? So you've got this picture of this, this one mountain that's plentiful in dew and plentiful in precipitation, sharing it and spreading it down in the dustier, drier region. In times of, uh, of, of growing crops, it would be really significant, right? Especially when water is scarce. When you have a drought or water scarcity, the absence of dew is almost as devastating as the absence of rain, right? There's, at that point, no water, no nourishment for the crops. In the same way, the presence of dew would be refreshing and life-giving during the dry season. Another way to say it is this. Dew sustains life. Likewise, that's what community does. It sustains life. I don't know about you, but life is often difficult and dry and dusty. We need the dew of community to sustain and revise, revive us. And if you take these images together, it, we can see the effects of community. When we give ourselves to God's community, it will restore and refresh and revive us. We'll see our purpose as we live for this set-apart purpose that God has given us. We'll see what it means to be a source. We'll see that, it, uh, that community can be a source of water for our roots so that we produce mature and healthy fruit. 
And we find without this community, the same is true. We will become parched and cracked. See, to understand what's gone wrong, we actually have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when community and unity were first broken. See, when sin first entered creation, unity was shattered and torn. See, in the garden, our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose autonomy over unity. They chose self-interest over the interests of the community. They chose to find their joy apart from God in isolation from him rather than to find their joy in God, the very essence of community itself. You see, the first sin was more than simply taken taking a bite of a forbidden piece of fruit. It was rejection of God. It was a rejection of his community and unity with him. It was saying, we don't want to live in community with you, God. We want to do it on our own. And that selfishness bent us towards radical individualism, and that has lingered ever since. We may find pseudo-communities here and there. We may even find glimpses of community that seem to satisfy for a while. But in the end, they all break down. That's why apart from Christ, we are dry and cracked. We want to have it our own way. And in the end, that selfishness is like acetone to the glue of community. It just eats it up. It dissolves it. And when community roots dissolve, with it goes our common meaning, our common purpose, and our common identity. And so we might get along for a short season by dabbling with lesser communities that the world has to offer, but all of them lack the ability to transform us from the inside out, to reconnect us with our maker, to establish in us once again a capacity for intimacy, vulnerability, and meaning. That's why these pseudo-communities never deliver on the promises that they offer. That's why even though we're more connected than we've ever been, we're still more lonely. That's why it's so important for the church to live out and display authentic community so that we can give the world a picture and a taste of what true community looks like. That's why at Seven Mile Road, we so highly value our gospel communities as places where we go deeper in authentic, real, and transformative relationships. It's where we get to live out the gospel on full display. It's where we get to live out what it means to be a Christian community. It's where people can be refreshed and restored and renewed and sustained. It's where people learn that they're living for something bigger than themselves. It's where we get to practice what it means to Give one another. It's where we can love one another and where we can bear one another's burdens. It's where we can see our diversity come alive in unity. It's where we see the real transformation happening in people's lives. It's where needs are met, people are known, and most of all, it's the community where we are tangibly and really loved. And when that happens, neighbors really will become family. Okay, so we've seen the nature of community. We've seen the effects of community. Let's look at the last line to see the source of community. The last line says this, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. So it begs the question, what is the there? For there the Lord commanded. What does it refer to? 
Well, grammatically speaking, in this psalm, it refers back to Zion. And remember, Zion wasn't just a mountain or a hill. It was the mountain, the holy hill where God's temple was built, which means it's also where God's presence dwelled. And it became a symbol for the whole city of God. And therefore, Zion became synonymous with the people of God. There in Zion, in his people, the Lord has commanded the blessing where the people of God dwell in unity with God himself. So in a sense, the there transcends just a plot of land and becomes the very people of God. This whole psalm has been about this theme of community, about how good and pleasant it is. And he's given us two illustrations to help us understand it. And now he's saying it's there in Zion, in God's family, in his holy community, that the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore. Where is life? It's found in God through his community. Where the Lord commands blessing, there the blessing comes. You know why? Because when God commands something, it happens. See, God himself is a community. That's why he can give us community. He can teach us about community, and we actually long for community because God himself is a community, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, the Christian faith is not a belief in a singular uniformity, but in a unified diversity. God in Trinity eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each one is fully God, totally God, and yet their unity is such that it's not three gods, there's just one God. He's one in being, one in essence, one in nature, but diverse in persons, three in persons. That's the community of God. And because we're made in that communal image, that's why we all long for it. Don't you see? It's not, it's not social constructs that make us want to be communal beings. It's we're made in the image of a communal God, and therefore we long for it. And when it's not there, there's a reason for it. It's hardwired in our DNA. That's why we all have an ache in our soul as we grieve what's been lost. It's like J.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, wrote in an essay. He said, we all long for Eden, and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature, at its best and at its least corrupt, its gentleness and most humane is still soaked with a sense of exile. He's saying all of us can't escape it. We all feel a sense in which we've been exiled out of the true community that we were made for. And it's not that we just missed the place. We're not just trying to find the plot of land that was the Garden of Eden. It's that we miss the community that was there. The wholeness, the peace, the love, being truly known and fully loved. We miss living without the weight of guilt weighing us down, without shame causing us to always try to find a place to hide, without always looking over our shoulder for fear of judgment. We miss the intimacy of communion with God. And we know that even our closest relationships right now have a barrier to them. That there's something that always keeps us from getting as close as we might want to be. But because God is the source of community, he intends to establish it once again. 
See, God was not content to let that fracture stay. He's going to reestablish perfection in community like we've never known. See, not only is God the blueprint for community, he is the one ensuring its blessing. In Hosea chapter 14, verse 5, God makes a promise. Look what he says. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily, and he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. See, God is the source of community. He's providing the blessing. We've seen it all throughout this psalm, the oil flowing down on the head, down to the beard, onto the clothes. It's the picture of the high priest being anointed for his sacred duty to carry the sins of the people and to present a sacrifice to make atonement so that relationship between God and man and, uh, can, can be mended. That's what makes unity possible. And it points to the day when the high priest, Jesus Christ, would be anointed for his sacred duty. See, this word Christ, Jesus Christ, is not his last name. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. And this picture of, of Aaron being anointed is meant for us to look forward to the day when God's holy and anointed one, Jesus Christ, would be set apart for his sacred duty, for his sacred task to bring unity back to the world. He would be the one to conquer sin, defeat death, and make things right again. We can have unity with God because Jesus was anointed not only to present the sacrifice, but to actually be the sacrifice for our sin. He carried the sin of his people to the altar of the cross. And when he died, he said, it is finished. And on the third day, he rose again so that the blessing could flow down to us. See, Jesus is the dew coming down from the heights of the mountaintops to heal our dry and weary land. See, there's been this refrain in the psalm, unity and love flowing down from the heights, the oil going down from the head to the clothes, and the dew coming down from the highest heights. It's a picture of God himself coming down, the true source of community coming down to restore what's been lost here. God is the source of our unity. It's not uh, something we can contrive. It's bestowed. It's given, not earned. It's a blessing, not an achievement. God has promised to make all things new. And with it, he's mending broken relationships, not only with him, but with each other. It's because of God's work in Christ that unity and love is even possible God is love. Without him, we wouldn't even know what that word meant. And God intends that we would show the world his redeeming love and grace by how we live in community together. So what would it look like if we lived in community like that? What would it look like if we lived together as one in such a way that the people around us saw it as a life-giving community? My estimation is we wouldn't need any more clever arguments it would be the argument to end all arguments. God has made it possible for us to be united in Christ and he prayed for it. Listen to the prayer of Christ for us. 
John 17, verse 20. He said, I don't ask for these only, his disciples, but I ask also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's the church, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that the glory you have given me, that I that the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. He's given us the love we need to make unity possible, and he's given us the example to follow in Jesus Christ. Now it's our job to actually live it out. See, community doesn't happen accidentally or passively. It's something we have to pursue. You know, earlier I read that definition of community. I could see on everyone's faces that you were pretty moved by it. They also wrote an anti-definition of community to help us see the difference. Let me read that one as well. This is the anti-definition. Community in the church and in my life is often me-centered, goal-driven, spiritually empty, and shallow. Members of this community show up when nothing else is happening. They live selfishly and pursue an ongoing journey of personal satisfaction. Through surface and rushed time together, particularly between other meetings and work-related demands, this disjointed and individualistic community lacks love, acceptance, and respect for one another. Fake, distant, Invulnerable relationships create an environment of vague and brief communication where real truth is seldom spoken, hurts are buried, and gossip prevails. In this bland, exclusive, click-driven community, outsiders are kept at a distance, and real needs within the group are rarely known because each member keeps to themselves both their needs and their resources depriving God of glory and the neighbor of their love and help. Now, when you put those two next to each other, the contrasts are stark. Now, I want to say these are optimal definitions. We're going to struggle to live those out perfectly. The gospel does not call us towards perfection. That's not the point here. But the point is, which community are we pursuing We have the best shot at hitting what we aim for, don't we? So let's be a community who pursue real and intimate, transformative community, like that first definition, where we know others, where we're known, where we are Christ-centered, spirit-led, submitted to Scripture, where we commit to one another and dwell together in unity.